electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Good Tuesday morning, everyone. Welcome to another Tech Check Plus live stream. I think that's what we're calling it. Sean, welcome. I'm so excited that we get to do this in this format. I know on TV, it's like three questions and we're out, right? So excited to be here. Nothing more fun to talk about than crypto. <laughs> Nothing more fun. We've already done a lot of talking about it this morning on Tech Check. I'm sure you have too, from you know probably the moment you wake up. Um, you just retweeted. So to the people who are watching, I know that there's already lots of people joining in. Please, Ask us your questions. We're going to get them to Sean. I'll keep one eye on whether you want to do that through YouTube, Twitter, wherever, LinkedIn even, you can do that. Um, Sean, let's jump right into it. Um, let's start sort of at the very beginning. Why do you need a dedicated crypto fund when you have other, you know, your peers who like to call themselves more generalists? They still invest in crypto and Web3. Why have a fund and a large one at that dedicated to it? You know, Need may not be the right word. We're very lucky to have one. Um, you know, we've been investing in crypto for the last six, seven years out, you know, at Sequoia and a bunch of us as individuals for even longer than that. And kind of as we restructured and became the Sequoia Fund, we and and became a registered investment advisor, kind of it opens the door to have more mm -hmm. flexibility. And over the last few years, Kind of the number one place we've gotten feedback from founders where we can do better is really in like the liquid part of crypto things like participating in on-chain governance staking um you know even potentially sometimes like helping to buy tokens when some of our protocols launch and we just those things were very hard to do in the traditional venture capital model right and so our goal with the new fund is to have a pocket of deeply crypto native people that can kind of do the frontier of crypto, which is usually on the liquid side, like live on the frontier mm -hmm. while not kind of losing the kind of the whole team orientation inside Sequoia around crypto. And so we're still going to do probably most of our crypto investing out of the existing funds we've had before. Hmm. And we're really just trying to strike a balance where kind of Everyone at Sequoia is still learning about crypto. Everyone is doing crypto, but while we also have a pocket that can move really fast and is just living it every minute. So that's kind of the, right. the balance. And it's an increasingly competitive space, right? I know that there's a lot of founders in the area that are looking for investment from people who really understand the space. And as you say, you're getting into the frontier, the earliest stages of this. On the LP side though, and you know, I talked to Roloff both about this, um, a few weeks ago, but about how Sequoia Partners kind of had, I think Alfred Lin actually called it this red pill moment. Um, mm. And it took Sequoia a little bit longer than say an Andreessen Horowitz to fully push into this space. Why do you think that's the case? What sort of changed when you got there also? So we at Sequoia have historically had unanimous decision-making. And so I think there's many people at Sequoia that have been red pilled for a long time. Like, you know, I've, I've only been at Sequoia the last few years. I've been red-pilled in crypto for over a decade now. And my company, we use Bitcoin in our core architecture going back to 2013. 
Alfred's been red-pilled for a very long time, um, but we have unanimous decision-making and that leads to, you know, like when you have, one of the things that's been hard for crypto with some people is that from a regulatory perspective, like it shouldn't have made it as far as it did. Mm-hmm. From a technical perspective, it's like, um, you know, s- still not very useful for everyday applications. And so if you try to use the lens of, of, of like the past, you're not going to get a very positive conclusion on crypto. But if you lose, use the lens of the future, it's inevitable. And it's like, it's just very clear that this is the direction the puck is going. And, you know, even though a couple of nations have tried to, you know, ban crypto mining or yeah. usage, like people are still using it and it hasn't, like it hasn't, people have tried to stop crypto and they haven't been able to stop it. And so it's just, I think that for some people, it took a while to just kind yeah. of em- embrace the inevitability here. And just over the last few years, it's been incredible. A lot of the people that we talked to on CNBC have had that so-called red pill moment. Appreciate your hockey analogy, by the way, where the puck is going um, as a Canadian. My, my dad was a hockey player. So, you know, I, I get those. Every once in a while. Where, did you grow, where did you grow up? So I grew up in Southern California, but my dad's from Chicago and he was, oh. my, he was a, a freak, talented athlete kid. He played professional tennis. He was like, you know, did was on like the state hockey team in Illinois. But he was a Blackhawks fan, right? Huge Blackhawks fan. I think <laughs> I always forget like Brett Holt, Bobby Holt, but he played with one, like the younger one and that his coach was like the legendary one. So anyways, I grew up with a lot of hockey in my house. Did you play yourself? No, I was a computer nerd. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That, that seems to have paid off. <laughs> I, I have three brothers, so I grew up playing a lot of hockey myself. Um, not surprised. Um, part of this idea right of having a crypto dedicated fund and where the puck is going to come back to our hockey analogy um some of your peers as you i thought i think it's so interesting how you say it wasn't a need it was more of a want um we were talking to kiefer boy at founders fund the other week and he was i guess dare i say maybe a little bit dismissive of a dedicated fund here's what he said he said you can't defy reality forever. Eventually, price, private valuations in crypto and Web3 will have to be reconciled with public market companies like Coinbase. Um, he said that because of dedicated crypto funds, people have nothing to do except spend the money. And that's leading to artificial price distortion. Now, we know that a ton of money has come into the space. How do you respond to something like that? And these valuations that we're constantly reporting on that are just going higher and higher. First of all, Keith is a very good friend of Sequoia. You know, Ruloff worked with Keith at PayPal, and you know, PayPal was a Sequoia-backed company. A lot of it, you know, know Keith. He's a close friend of a lot of ours. Um, And I think there's actually a lot of truth in what he's saying, but I, but I don't think it's exactly right, and I don't think it applies to Sequoia. So yes, valuation and adjust to public markets. Fully agree with that, and we're kind of in my opinion, seeing it in some of the private valuations recently. Um, second of all, like when you have pressure to deploy a fund very quickly like that can lead to all sorts of kind of short-term bad decision-making. And I, I fully agree with him on those. But in terms of crypto, like we're really focused on the liquid side here. Yeah. And it's more that there are just a bunch of things we couldn't do as a traditional venture capital fund. And now the shackles are off and we can right. really kind of go live 
in the frontier of crypto. And, and so it's just, it's kind of, what are you saying? Maybe that applies to some of the, you know, equity investments in any field that are kind of adjusting right now to public market compression. But, you know, I just, I think that liquid side is orthogonal to that. Um, it's interesting. I, I like that response. It's very nuanced, but you have other sort of players coming into the space. Um, and I wonder how that's different or not different from what Sequoia is trying to do. Bain Capital, for example, not long after you guys announced your crypto fund came out with its large one also that sounded a lot similar to what Sequoia is doing. Does that create competition? And did I hear you say that, yes, some of the valuations are getting out of hand? I did not. I mean, look, some valuations have been getting out of hand for, you know, forever. You go back to the dot-com boom, you know, but there's always been, you know, Google and and a couple other legendary companies came out of the dot-com boom. So it, it really just kind of depends on which companies you're talking about. And it's always really hard to, to know in the moment. Um, on Bain, I think people really, it's, it's hard to understand how close of friends a lot of people in the crypto community are. And like, you know, people that have been in crypto for a long time, like you had to start, it's like a band of brothers and sisters where the people that were in crypto 10 years ago are all kind of crazy people with screws loose and <laughs> all know each other. And right. It's in general, I would say crypto has been more collaborative than traditional venture capital. Like mm. the whole space has been growing so quickly. There's so much opportunity that, you know, you just don't need to be as kind of protective of your little corner as maybe people have had to be in other investment areas in the past. Right. The other thing is that, you know, there's a lot of fear. One of the core points of crypto is decentralization. And that even applies to cap tables and, you know, like, having it's, there's like value in having multiple funds on your cap table and right. and having some of that decentralization in your cap table. So it's just, it's just more collaborative than other areas. Yeah, we were just talking this morning to Consensus uh, CEO, um, Joe Lubin, and his cap table is kind of wild, right? There's everything from traditional banks to crypto firms to Microsoft now, you've got big tech. Um, so the cap tables are, and it just represents the shift, I think is what you're saying in venture capital. Okay, I want to talk to about I w what worries you the most in the space? We're still very early on, of course, but what has the potential to derail progress, turn off regulators, or even turn off sort of the mainstream that has really been captured by the ecosystem over the last few years? Excellent question. You know, I've, I've lived through crypto for the last 10 years now, and I have a hard time seeing something that will stop crypto in the long run. Like I truly believe that in the long run, it is inevitable and is going like that the future of money is hidden within all the ideas we have right now. Like we may not have the thing that will be the future of money or, you know, kind of like the long-term most enduring cryptocurrency. Mm -hmm. But I think in the short run, there's all sorts of things that can set crypto back by like a few years. I just don't think anything can kill it. And those things, I, I think the one that I am most scared of is just like scams for consumers, yeah. and, you know, taking money from kind of the everyday person, losing some of their just money, especially if they don't have much savings. And mm -hmm. whenever there's just crypto goes in cycles and like whenever there's a big bull market, more scammers come in, you know, there's 
there's like probably a fixed number of scammers in the world and they just go to whatever domain has the most opportunity for them to get rich quickly. Yeah. And like when crypto's at a peak, a lot of them come into crypto and, and it takes them a while to get their scams going. And so we're just, we are seeing a surge there. And um, that said, like, I think people really underestimate how the crypto community is a weird place. It's different than any other community. It's very reminiscent of the hacker community in the 90s. And so like yesterday or the day before, um, there was a, I, I believe it was Avalanche NFT marketplace. There was a layer two NFT marketplace. I only saw the Twitter thread. I didn't read it very carefully. And basically like there was a vulnerability. I think something like 150, you were basically able to buy NFTs for $0 something like 154 NFTs, if I remember correctly, were stolen. Mm. And white, hat, white hats like realized that this was happening. And so they yeah. went and basically bought like 151 of them and gave them back to their original owners and whichever platform had, they paused a smart contract. And so it's basically like only three or four NFTs were stolen by this vulnerability because the community, like right. community police itself and went and tried to actually help you know, like these people that had their NFT stolen. And there's just so many stories like that from yeah. crypto. And so it's just like a more self-policing community than others. I tell you, Sean, even as a journalist, sort of just covering this space and believing, as you say, in this long-term long future and that this is going to change, it's a major paradigm shift. But what's right ahead of us, what we're looking at as a financial news journalist, there's so much to pick through. You have to sort through. Um, some of the land grabs that are coming up in this area. So I want to shoot a few at you that have sort of made me sit back and think, okay, how do I reconcile this? The first one is stable coins. The fact that these are unregulated, but they play such a massive part of the ecosystem. And it really feels to me that, you know, this could be a vulnerability within the ecosystem that, as you say, may not derail the entire thing in the long term, but really has the sh in the short term has the potential to, I guess, screw things up with regulators and make lawmakers and regulators take a major step back. You, you have really gone up the curve, Deirdre, like you've become very crypto native and it's, <laughs> it's a great question. Two things to say on this, like two different threads. One is that just in the historical arc of crypto, there's been a lot of times like different people have had different strategies with how much regulatory risk they want to take. And so let's think about exchanges. You know, like the thing that really differentiated Coinbase from most of the other exchanges going back, you know, eight years, seven years, like they wanted to, even though they were an exchange and being an exchange in crypto was kind of like the frontier and you didn't know what it meant from a regulatory perspective, they tried to be the most regulatory conservative kind of exchange in America where they had extreme KYC, even when other people had no KYC and they had like very few cryptocurrencies, like only for years, only Bitcoin, Ethereum, yeah. you know, then like, Litecoin, like, like, uh, and it was either Ethereum Classic or, anyways, they had four for a long time, and they like stable coins to me are similar. Where you have some stable coins that are on the far frontier of like how risk prone they are from a regulatory perspective, and then you have some that are like on the far conservative side, like USDC. And in my opinion, as one person, like the Stable coins are really doing their best to be transparent, like, you know, reveal what their right. assets are, like, you know, to communicate openly yeah. with regulators, like 
to me, that's just a very different thing than some stable coin that's the Wild West. So that's, that's point one. And point two is that I actually think in general, people kind of misunderstand a little bit the role that stable coins play and how much risk they bring. You know, Tether's the one that people talk about all the time. I used to be a market maker. Like I worked at DRW, which is, was one of the top market makers mm-hmm. when I was there. And I actually think that the role, the best analogy I can come up with for stable coins is they play a role very similar to market makers. Uh, like yeah. at DRW, sometimes we would have assets where we would be on like at least one side of 40% of crude oil, like options trades in a day. And like literally like that scale, but our overall net long position would be almost zero. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just that we were on every trade. It, you know, there's this classic physics joke that like, you know, there's only one electron in the world and it just, you know, buzzes back and forth. You know, <laughs> that one electron is all the electrons. Yeah. And it's kind of the same with stable coins where like Tether, if it went away, like it, it really kind of plays a role like a market maker. And there's actually a bunch of other stable coins I that are it. like the market maker. Right. And so just a little, I actually don't think it's as much risk as people think. That's my and I think what you're saying here is people are getting in and out of it. I've heard it described as sort of the chips in the casino in that no one's really holding onto it for long. It's just facilitating different trades. Exactly. I hear it's you. Hard. I just wonder if there was ever a run on it. And because there's so little information, what does that mean? But but I have a few other ones that I want to get to, Sean. Um, okay, let's go. We, we could keep talking about this, but I do because I, these are big questions for me. <laughs> um, the other one is NFTs and wash trading. How do yeah. I reconcile that um, when it's so easy? And for maybe people who are watching that don't know what that is, and tell me, Sean, if I'm explaining this correctly, but you can basically mint an NFT and then buy it back immediately, transfer it from wallet to wallet to create basically value out of thin air, print, ETH, or whatever it is. is does that concern you? How does that get resolved? Yeah, Wall Street is basically, just to say it in a different way, when... Yeah. Someone like, for example, say the same human has two different wallets and they, you know, buy an NFT they own, you know, from, an, from one of their other wallets at a much higher price. So now they're trying to signal to the market that this NFT should be worth this higher price. And you price. and I could do that too. You just need to sort yeah. of agree with someone. For, for sure. Yes. And so it can also be kind of collusion that way. I mean, that's, a, that's exact. First of all, it happens. Second of all, like it happened in traditional financial markets for a very, very long time, you know, and like the SEC has, you know, a bunch of guidelines around wash trading. Um, I think that people in crypto, like, you know, it's all getting figured out right now. And, and like, this is why we're pro regulation. We just want regulation to be done in as smart of a way as possible, like that kind of mirrors the openness of the internet and kind of mirrors some of the consumer protections put in place around, you know, traditional finance. And so I would just say it's a problem. It's not as big of a problem as a lot of people think. Like, I think there's a lot of NFTs like Bored Apes, CryptoPunks, et cetera, where wash trading reflects basically 0% or like almost no percent of the value of those NFTs. But then there are some, you know, newer ones where it, it has been a problem. You just led into my next question, my my thing that sort of, let me call them red flags. And that's why I'm asking you about them in in my mind, at least as a journalist trying to cover this space. You mentioned CryptoPunks, Bored Apes, um, now owned by the same company, Yuga Labs. And we talk so much about decentralization. That is the backbone of Web3 and crypto. But 
we're increasingly seeing this centralization. Let's call it three players, OpenSea, Yuga Labs, Andreessen Horowitz, perhaps, <laughs> which you may not like to hear. Um, but how do, you, how do you reconcile that with the ethos that this is supposed to be all decentralized when you're seeing these big players get bigger? Well, Jack's the legendary Sequoia founder, you know, and you're, you're channeling Jack here. Um, <laughs> again, I, with almost everything, there's kernels of truth in the statements, but it's also not as bad as people think. And so like, if I were to unpack any of those, say with, with NFTs, like OpenSea is definitely by far the dominant open, like NFT trading platform on Ethereum. Magic Eden is by far the dominant trading platform on Solana. Like it's hard to know where the future is going to go. Look at exchanges like uh, Mt. Gox was 70% plus a Bitcoin trading volume back in like 2012. Now it's zero. And, you know, like all, there was this unbundling of exchanges. Right. Mm -hmm. One of the things that happens in crypto is you get bundling very quickly in like a new frontier and then it unbundles over the next few years. The reason why is that in crypto, a lot of times new ideas will kind of emerge out of nowhere and gain popularity unbelievably quickly. NFTs like weren't really a thing until beginning of 2021 and OpenSea kind of was in the right place with the right mm -hmm. technology, right solution. I'm a huge fan of OpenSea. I think they're amazing. I use it all the time, but I think they're gonna like, if I were to look at 10, 15 years from now, I would be surprised if they're more than 20% of NFT trading volume, similar to what's happened with exchanges. Mm -hmm. uh, and there'll be a fragmentation by different, you know, chains, you know, different regional, like geographies. Some people have better NFT marketplace for games. Some people have better NFT marketplace in Japan. Like, I just think we're going to see a lot of unbundling and that's just been the case yeah. in everything in crypto. You know, I asked the same question to Joe Lubin earlier this morning and something he said that I thought was really interesting is that the way that these the community is built is that it will self-police over time. Um, and of course, we are still early on. Okay, I do want to get to some of these questions too, but first, the last one that I have to ask you about, please explain ApeCoin to me and how it is not scammy, dare I say. I can't, I can't get my head around it. What does sort of like Wall Street and proponents of Web3 and crypto need to know about it? So obviously, can't give financial advice. Um, it's when things are new in crypto, it takes a while to figure out the right metaphors to explain them. You know, like in physics, it took 70 years to figure out the right metaphors to explain quantum entanglement. Like it just takes a really long time to figure out the right language. And, and I think we're still struggling here with, with some of this. But just a couple of quick things. One is like Yuga Labs has been really brilliant from a business perspective, and they've kind of yeah. brought like a whole new level of business development to crypto in general. And one of the things that like you, when you own an ape or when you own a punk soon, you are like a real owner of the IP that corresponds to that. And like Yuga Labs is putting out a video game and like you're well, going to get okay. revenue. Share. Yeah. Let me, let me distinguish. Okay. I, I don't yeah. really dispute sort of the idea that this could be useful. Something really interesting could be built out of this, but the way that it's presented to me is what's so interesting. They've gone through to a lot of pains to describe it as completely decentralized, but the fact of the matter is it's just not right now, right? Yuga Labs to me, it seems like wants not responsibility for it, but they are going to take a significant chunk of the profit. So is it in the way that they're framing it? Could that be improved? 
I think that's fair. Just like in the interest of time, I think that's fair. I think they can get better at explaining it. Um, but I, I also think it's really interesting and I respect them a lot for running the experiment. Okay, fair, fair. Um, we are, geez, we've already gone 25 minutes, John. I promise to only keep you for 25, but this last question is really important because we talk about this a lot on CNBC. It's a question that I just saw on um, YouTube. Where is it? Using it on what, and maybe cryptocurrencies in general, besides store of value and speculation. When we talk about this on CNBC, we are often flashing the price of cryptocurrencies, which doesn't tell you anything about the underlying value. And it's so interesting because, you know, a shareholder who buys or an investor who buys Apple stock generally knows who the customer is and what the iPhone, you know, is good for. Why a customer would want the iPhone. But when someone's buying Ether, for example, they may not understand the blockchain and the technology behind it. So what do you, what's sort of like your response to investors and explain it to me, not like I'm a seven-year-old, but like I'm a 70-year-old. <laughs> um, I think seven-year-old is perfect because someone who's 70 lives through the rise of the internet. And I think that's the right framework. Um, there is a wonderful video of Bill Gates on Jay Leno in, I believe, 1995. And I encourage people to Google it, like Bill Gates, Jay Leno, 1995, um, and, or maybe, sorry, Letterman, David Letterman, just Bill Gates' internet video, you know, 90s, where he, he's asked like, oh, this internet thing, you think it's a big deal? Like, why is it a big deal? And Bill just deeply struggles to explain why it's a big deal. You know, he talks about, well, oh, you can listen to you know, like a sports game from anywhere in the world, anytime. And, and Letterman is like, well, what, isn't that the radio? And, you know, it just, it was so clear if you were living in the internet then that it was different and that it opened new possibilities, but it was not yet possible to say like that we're going to have this thing called Instagram. It's going to be great. You can't even imagine YouTube, you know, your, your kids are going to spend more time on YouTube than watching television. It's very clear to me as someone that lives in crypto that, that like we're going to have tons and tons of applications in 10, 15 years and much sooner than that. But it's just like, it's going to change money and it's going to change kind of like the internet. What, but, I wonder if this is different, Sean. You have so many institutional investors in the space. Do you think that they understand the underlying technology? They'd be able to explain it. Does it matter? that perhaps they're seeing it as like a store of value? Are there similarities between the early stages of the internet and sort of the speculation around cryptocurrencies right now? Very few people can explain the full stack of how the internet works or how a computer works. Yeah. Um, like go ask people to explain the difference between TCPIP and UDP, go ask people to, you know, like write some code in assembly, like people are gonna absolutely struggle. struggle. You come up with more and more abstractions, um, I absolutely do not think you need to understand kind of the how everything works to be very successful in the field. Um, a lot of NFT traders are evidence of that. Um, that said, like I don't think that crypto is just a store of value. Like to me, it's this is it's new infrastructure. It is, you know, like one of the most interesting properties of of Ethereum is that like one of the things that the internet's built on is these things called hardware security modules. These are things that generate like encryption that you can use to encrypt websites and things like that. And you need some 
thing that can generate randomness at the core. Crypto gives you a way, cryptocurrencies give you a way to have like bootstrap trusted identities. That's just not possible without cryptocurrency. There's just so many core primitives that are new here that we're, start, we're just like fumbling in the dark, figuring out the best way to use them, but it's so clear that they're really valuable. Yeah, and I think that's uh, entering the conversation more and more and less so as a store of value, especially just even at the start of this year and the role that cryptocurrencies has played in geopolitical events, which we didn't even get to, Sean. We have now gone 10 minutes over the allotted time. Uh, your people are probably, you know, signaling that you got to go. But um, this was Thank wonderful. You so much Thank for having you. Me. We, we, I still feel like we barely scratched the surface, but we'll have to do it again. Happy um, to come on anytime. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Sean. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Have a good one. Take care. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.